Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 326, Dr. Lacona's Historical Case That Jesus Considered Himself to Be God, Part 1. In this and the next episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to respond to a talk given at a 2017 apologetics conference. If you're not familiar with him, Dr. Lacona is an associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. He also has his own apologetics ministry called Risen Jesus, Inc. His PhD is in New Testament, but what's distinctive of his work is applying the standards of historians to evaluating New Testament writings. And in general, I have to say, I'm sympathetic to what he's doing, because I think it is important to look at the biblical writings through a historical lens. I think it's very important to interpreting them correctly. I also have a good impression of Dr. Lacona, He's a good communicator. He's an independent thinker. He tries to bring recent scholarship to the masses. He seems to conduct himself like an actual disciple of Jesus, which is more than one can say about a number of well-known apologists. And unlike many a prickly and seemingly fragile theologian, he's willing to publicly debate people who disagree with him. And I'll put some links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can see his website, risenjesus.com, and some of the debates he's had with people regarding New Testament issues. And let me just say that if he's game, I would love to debate Dr. Lacona. I think he would be a worthy opponent, and I think it'd be a very interesting exchange. But you can listen to these episodes and see if you agree. These episodes are given in the spirit of Proverbs 18.17, which says, The one who first states a case seems right, until the other comes and cross-examines. Dr. Lacona thinks that he can show that it's more probable than not that Jesus actually considered himself to be God. My aim is to dismantle that case piece by piece. And it's not because I have some major methodological disagreement with Dr. Lacona. Like him, I consider the New Testament to be inspired scripture, and like him, I think it's important to look at the New Testament through a historical lens. And let me add a little clarification in case you're not familiar with my work. I'm not a critic of Christianity. I'm not a critic of the Bible. I agree with New Testament doctrine properly understood, but I think that that message has been misunderstood and heavily laden down with further claims by mainstream Christian tradition. My view about Jesus is exactly what the New Testament explicitly says about him, which is that he is God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's unique Son, who is a man, now raised and exalted to God's right hand, who will someday return. What I disagree with is that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, and the historical claim that Jesus claimed to be God. I think the evidence is strongly against both of those claims. My case will be built not on any kind of philosophical speculation, by the way, but on just very flat-footed, critical-thinking moves. So I'll use clearer passages to illuminate the less clear. I'll look for relevant context to clarify the meaning of the passages that he brings up. And I'll make use of just a few self-evident truths in my attempt to charitably interpret these sources. The principle of charity requires that we should strive to find an interpretation of an author wherein that author does not contradict himself and also does not contradict other things that they should have known. It's how we expect people to interpret our writings. And the more seriously you take a source, the more reluctant you should be to attribute just profound confusions to the author. As I'm about to explain, Dr. Lacona fits into the category that I've called a Jesus-is-God apologist, and I think such apologists owe us an answer to my podcast 124 called A Challenge to Jesus-is-God Apologists. So that's another somewhat more theoretical angle on these Jesus-is-God arguments, but I'm not going to reproduce that material here. Listen critically and see if you agree that unlike my case, Dr. Lacona's case is built on difficult passages, contentious translations, 
and contentious comments on passages and basically on doubtful inferences from those passages, that is, what they allegedly presuppose or imply. I'm going to be pulling at various threads and unraveling his claims that these texts are implying that Jesus is God himself. So let's get into his talk. I'm going to edit out a few introductory bits and get right into the meat of it. One title that he gives for this talk is, Did Jesus Regard Himself as Divine? Question mark a historical cause with an affirmative conclusion. And our first question should be, what does he mean by saying that Jesus is divine? That could mean a lot of different things. So we're going to be talking about John, Paul, and the Fab Four on Jesus. But you think I'm talking about the Beatles, right? No, no. I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to have to see what they have to say about Jesus. So the question we're going to be addressing in this session is, did Jesus regard himself as divine? We're not necessarily asking the question, does the Bible say that Jesus was divine? And I mean God by that, okay? Did he say he was God? When Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, one of the main issues with which you can have a discussion with them is, did Jesus claim to be God? Does the New Testament claim that Jesus was God? And all we have to do is show them certain verses where he did. And of course, that you know, they have certain verses and we can answer them. And then we can give them certain verses to show that Jesus claimed to be God. That is not what I'm going to be addressing in this session. But that question would be, does Jesus claim to be God in the New Testament? All right, that's not what I'm, I'm going to be addressing. I'm going a little bit different here, and I'll tell you why. So when you're talking to Jehovah's Witness, you can answer the question, did Jesus claim to be God as it's in the New Testament? And all you have to do is show them verses. But when you're talking to a skeptic, an agnostic, an atheist, a Muslim, who does not accept the Bible as God's word, they might say, well, the Bible, yeah, the Bible says Jesus is God. I don't believe the Bible. So what do you do then? What I'm going to do is apply historical method give you a historical argument for why we should believe that not only does the Bible claim Jesus is God, but why we should believe that the Bible is really correct here, that Jesus did indeed claim to be God, that he thought he was God. Now, whenever somebody stands up and says they're going to defend the deity of Christ or the divinity of Christ or that Jesus, quote, is God, there's a very serious problem of interpretation. Some people, when they say that Jesus is divine, just mean something like Jesus is closely associated with God, or that Jesus is like God. Well, I agree with those things. What's more traditional is to say that, quote, the deity of Christ, or, quote, that Jesus is God, are just shorthand for the creedal claim that Jesus has a divine nature in addition to his human nature. That's a difficult realm of speculation, and not clearly taught in Scripture. But then again, some people, when they say that Jesus is God, they just mean that they're one and the same, like Superman is Clark Kent, or Mark Twain is Samuel Clemens. Jesus just is God. Those are numerically identical, so also God just is Jesus. There can't be any difference between them in principle, because it's just one reality. What does Dr. Lacona mean? Well, I take it he's a mainstream evangelical, so he must think that the one God is triune but I don't think he thinks that Jesus is triune, so surely he can't just be collapsing God and Jesus together, that is, asserting their numerical identity. Wouldn't that be uncharitable to him to suppose that he thinks that these are one and the same, and yet they differ from one another? One is triune or tripersonal, and the other one isn't. So maybe he's just making a two natures claim, which doesn't imply that you can collapse together Jesus and God, that you can numerically identify them. And just to point out that he's kind of on board with the recent trend of arguing for, quote, early high Christology, really doesn't clarify it at all. The Christian philosopher and analytic theologian Dr. Andrew Loke, in his 2017 book entitled The Origin of Divine Christology, is very much on board with that realm of literature. And yet he strongly and clearly denies that Jesus just is God that those are numerically identical. He writes, It is important to understand the distinction between identify by and identify with. To identify by is to say something can be recognized or represented by an aspect of that thing without implying that that aspect is equivalent to that thing. 
For example, a certain person, David, can be identified by certain unique facial features, but he is not equivalent to those features. He obviously has other parts. On the other hand, to identify with is to assert equivalence. Then he has in parentheses an equal sign, which is used in modern logic to express the concept of numerical identity. For example, a certain David is identical with the person who killed Goliath. They are one and the same. We can make the distinction between the inference that Paul identifies Yahweh by Jesus, that is, Jesus represents Yahweh, This is consistent with the idea that Jesus is a person within Yahweh alongside God the Father. And Paul identifies Yahweh with Jesus, which implies that Jesus equals Yahweh. This would be Unitarianism. Paul is clearly not a Unitarian. Now, I think by Unitarianism there, he's not using it in its proper sense, which is that the one God just is the Father and not anyone else, but he's using Unitarian in an extended sense to mean any view on which God just is one person. So if Jesus just is God, if those are one and the same, Jesus is unipersonal. He's a single self. And so if he just is God, then God will be a single self. Well, that doesn't look like it's a Trinitarian view, arguably. Of course, it depends what you think, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity amounts to. Okay, but the point is, Loke is in the early high Christology club. He also is an evangelical. He thinks that the deity of Christ is very true and important, but he does not understand the deity of Christ or the divinity of Christ to imply that Christ and God are numerically one. However, in spite of the problem I just mentioned, and in contrast to Dr. Loke, after listening to him for a long time, I have to reluctantly conclude that Dr. Lacona does numerically identify Jesus with God. He seems to use the claim that Jesus is God just interchangeably with the claim that Jesus is divine. And I think I know what he's thinking. Of course, I'm happy to be corrected about this if I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll have to adjust my arguments in this in the next episode. You might argue this is uncharitable, but I'm trying to be charitable and understand Dr. Lacona in his own terms. I think what he thinks is that, yes, to say that Jesus is divine is to say that he has a divine nature. And to have a divine nature, it's sufficient for being a god. And since there's only one god, to have a divine nature is sufficient to imply that Jesus just is the one god himself. So I do think he's collapsing Jesus and God, that is, asserting their numerical identity. His language just forces me to that. And sometimes, like other Jesus-is-God apologists, Dr. Lacona will make arguments which have, as their conclusion, the claim of numerical identity that Jesus just is God. You'll see some examples of that in the arguments that we evaluate in Part 2 next week. Okay, we need to ask then, is that what our New Testament sources are doing? If the authors are clearly presupposing that there are differences between God and Jesus, then the answer has to be no. Now, if I was arguing with Dr. Loke, I would have to attack the idea that Jesus has divine nature. And that would be a matter of seeing which essential attributes the New Testament teaches Jesus to have. That's kind of a different argument. Okay, so he's clarified that his case isn't just about the New Testament, but really it's about the historical Jesus and what the earliest Christians thought, and he's going to use that as evidence for what Jesus himself thought. We're not assuming that the Bible is divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, or even historically reliable. It's what can we prove with reasonable historical certainty? And I'm going to give you some historical reasons for believing that Jesus thought he was divine, that he thought he was God. I'm going to give you two key truths regarding it as more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be divine. When we say more probable than not, what do I mean by that? More probable than not, when we talk about historical investigation, some things are more certain than others. We have more historical evidence to suggest that Jesus died by crucifixion than we have for the virgin birth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't believe the virgin birth. I'm just saying if we approach this purely as a historical question apart from faith, we have far more evidence that Jesus died by crucifixion than that he was born of a virgin. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, We have fantastic evidence to suggest that Jesus rose from the dead. 
In fact, I assess the evidence or the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead as very certain. The evidence we have that Jesus claimed to be God is not as good as the evidence we have for the resurrection. But I'd say it's more probable than not. So it's still good enough to believe, historically speaking, that Jesus claimed to be God. It's just not as good as we have for the resurrection. So that's how I'm nuancing this again, okay? So it's two key truths that rendered more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be divine. Key truth number one, the earliest Christians, that is Jesus' apostles, regarded Jesus as divine. What's the evidence for this? When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Lacona founds his case on what many scholars consider to be one of the earliest passages in the New Testament. Let's go to the earliest Christian writings. Philippians is one of the earliest letters, probably written around the year 60, around within 30 years of Jesus' death. There's a hymn in it. It's called the Kenosis Hymn. It's chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which many scholars think Paul is embedding this in there, that Paul didn't come up with this. It's just an early Christian hymn, but it, it tells us about some Christian doctrine. And here's what the hymn says. While existing in the form of God, Jesus did not regard being equal to God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and was born in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God exalted him greatly and gave to him the name that is above every name, in order that at Jesus' name every knee may bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue may profess that the Lord is Jesus Christ Whoa. to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so that's the passage, and you may have noticed something strange about his translation. <laughs> we'll come back to that in due course. But just on the face of it, Jesus isn't God here. God is someone other than Jesus. God is someone else who exalts Jesus as a reward for Jesus' obedience to God. And then towards the end, it says that honor which is given to Jesus actually glorifies this other one, that is to say, God the Father. Now, there are plenty of questions we should have about this passage, but surely it doesn't confuse together Jesus with his God, right? And let me first flag something here that the ordinary listener, the ordinary you know, kid attending an apologetics talk is not going to know. This text is an unclear one. It's difficult to figure out exactly what this text is saying, what story it's telling. Don't take my word for it. This is just a commonplace with New Testament scholars. There's a widely read 1998 collection of essays about this passage called Where Christology Began, Essays on Philippians 2. And in his essay, which is chapter 5 of that volume, Dr. Lincoln Hurst writes this, Philippians 2, 6-11 continues to be one of the most disputed passages in the history of New Testament interpretation. Right? Does it teach Jesus' pre-existence? That's controversial. Does it teach that Jesus has the divine nature or essence? That's controversial. Is it comparing Jesus with Adam? Is that a key to interpreting this? That's somewhat controversial. There are unusual words here and unclear ideas. This isn't a normal part of Paul's teaching, that you could just find him teaching in all of his letters or all of his undisputed letters. Okay, now that should worry you right there, when the very first thing that a presenter jumps to is a difficult passage about which there are tons of disputes, and you know he's not going to tell you about most of them. Wouldn't it be better to start with the more numerous and clear passages and try to found your case on those, and if need be, bring in the more difficult passages and try to illuminate them by the clear ones? Okay, but let's let Dr. Lacona make his case 
that Philippians 2 shows that Paul thought that Jesus is God. While existing in the form of God, the question is, what does that mean, exist in the form of God? The Greek word here is morphe. It contrasts with the form of a servant. Right. It's not contrasting the form of God with the form of a human. It's the form of God with the form of a servant. Right. And this is a very important point. And this is why you can't take morphe to mean an essential nature, like Jesus has the essential nature divinity. Morphe here has to mean a condition. Why? Because servanthood or slavehood was not classically understood to be an essence. For any slave or servant, what their essence is, is human. Slavery is a condition that some are found in, but it's not an essence. That's not a feature that a thing has to have so long as it exists. And because he's trading in this form of God for the form of a servant, you know, then it also can't be an essence, right? Dr. Lacona correctly agrees with this. He's going to try to explain this as having to do with a role, not with an essence. The difference between human and servant, you've got the essence if we're talking human, but when we're talking about servant, we're talking about a role, right? A status or a role. Right. So since the early Christians here, Paul, are contrasting the form of God with the form of a servant, he's really saying Jesus existed in the role of God. And he emptied himself on that. He didn't regard being equal with God something that he was going to hold on to. So he emptied himself and took on, he, he gave up that role of God and took on the role of a slave, a servant. The role of God. Wow. So he was the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he gave that up? He's the provident Lord over all the history of the cosmos. Is that the sort of thing that someone could give up? I don't think so. And arguably, it's packing way too much into this little phrase. Why can't the form of God just be in a condition like that of God, such as one would deserve honor and respect by all other people? Like Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, he came not to be served, which he deserved to be served because he was the son of God, but rather to serve, he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was born in human likeness. Born in human likeness. Yeah, so notice he is presupposing that this is about Jesus's pre-human existence. And first, he's not God and man, but he's only God or only divine. And then he voluntarily, like Vishnu in Avatar literature, he voluntarily decides to take birth, something which is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. That should give us pause. He decides in some sense to become lowly, so he can also become a human. This is a traditional interpretation, but it's one that's been challenged by a number of scholars. Notice one thing, though. The passage is explicitly about Jesus. And right before where Dr. Lacona started reading, it says, Christ Jesus, in verse 5. Okay, Jesus is the name of a human being. Christ Jesus means Jesus the Messiah. That's the name of a human being. It's not clear that you would use the term Jesus to refer to some eternal, pre-existent divine person. Why shouldn't we just take this to be about the life of Jesus? Because we know that in his life... He came not to be served, but to serve. He did not demand all the privileges that he should have as the unique, beloved Son of God, but rather he let people trample on him, so to speak. And he gave the maximal gift. He died a horrible death. He lost his life. And you can translate being born in human likeness in verse 7 as just being in human likeness. So some other translations, instead of translating being born, they say, being made in human likeness, having been made in the likeness of men, King James, made in the likeness of men, coming in the likeness of men. So there's this story about the heroic sacrifice of this eternal divine person who decides to become human, but it's just not clear that that narrative is required by this text. It looks like you can take it to be about the earthly life of the man Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. For this reason, God exalted him greatly and gave to him the name that is above every name. Now, if I were to ask you, what was the name that he received? Many of you would say, Jesus. 
And I said that too. I mean, after all, what was that hymn? Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, right? From the 1970s. But it dawned on me several years ago, that can't be what it is. After all, what name did he have before his death? Jesus. Really? So he dies his death on the cross and God gives him the same name he had? Well, thanks a lot for that reward. I had that before I went through all that. Well, it's interesting to note that the Greek word for name is anima, and it also can mean title. Now think about this, just instead of thinking name, think title. Because Jesus subjected himself to death on the cross, God exalted him and gave him the title that is above every other title. So that at Jesus' title, every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, I do agree with Dr. Lacona that it's plausible that the name or title which Jesus is given as a result of his obedience is Lord. As Peter says in Acts 2.36, God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, some people at this point will naively say, game over, kurios, Lord, is in the New Testament a euphemism for the divine name, Yahweh, which they didn't pronounce and use in Jesus' time. And so when he says Jesus is Lord, obviously Jesus is God. Well, no, obviously not, because God is someone other than Jesus in this text. Furthermore, we know from his other writings that Paul thinks that the one God is essentially immortal. For the passages and the argument to that effect, see Trinity's podcast 145, Tis Mystery All, the Immortal Dies. A being who is essentially immortal, just in principle, can't die. Well, Jesus, according to Philippians 2 here, died. So, no, Paul doesn't think Jesus is God. He doesn't think God can die. Jesus is someone else. He's a man. It would be unthinkable for Paul that God should be killed by human beings, or by anybody, whatever, even himself. But also, it's just a standard New Testament confession that there's one God, and that's the Father. Oh, and also, there's one Lord, and that's the man Jesus, the Christ. So, for instance, Paul, in Ephesians 4, gives what I call a Christian unity slogan. He lists a whole bunch of unique blessings which all Christians enjoy and which kind of unite all Christians together. He writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, obviously that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So there's one Lord, yes. Oh, also, there's one God. And Paul's not being redundant here, right? counting the same thing twice, just using different names, right? So the one Lord is someone other than the one God. And again, the overall pattern of his usage is very clear. He starts out all of the letters attributed to him by giving a greeting in the name of God the Father and also in the name of Jesus Christ or the Son of God. Check that out. Look at every letter that's ascribed to Paul in the New Testament. Look at the greeting in the first chapter and you'll see immediately, yeah, Paul distinguishes between God and the Son of God. It's the difference between the Father and Son, yes, but it's also the difference between God and the Son of God, who is explicitly a man who was born. Okay, but Dr. Lacona wants to draw a big inference from Paul's use of Lord here in Philippians 2. So this is how he continues. That comes from Isaiah 45. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, and there is not another. I have sworn by myself, my words have gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will profess to God. In this chapter 45 of Isaiah, we have God who says no less than eight times in that chapter, I am God, I'm the only God, there is no other God but me. And then after saying it all those times, he says, and to me every knee bow and every tongue will profess to God. And this is what the early Christians attributed to Jesus. To Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will profess to God. This is amazing. They're taking a verse that applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and they're applying it to Jesus in the earliest times of the Christian church. Okay, so the big inference is that Paul has taken this passage 
which originally applied to Yahweh, and now he's applying that passage to Jesus. And so, obviously, the only point of doing that could be that he thinks Jesus just is Yahweh himself. Right? Wrong. This is a huge and wrong-headed leap, and this is a clear instance of an exegetical fallacy that I've dubbed the fulfillment fallacy. For more on the fulfillment fallacy, check out Trinity's podcast 320. But first, a couple of historical points about the original text here, which are very relevant. First of all, in the New Testament era, and for a long time afterwards, there were no such thing as quotation marks. Okay, so Paul just can't be quoting that passage from Isaiah in the same sense that you or I would if we use quotation marks. Also, notice that he doesn't say, you know, as Isaiah predicted about Jesus, he's not making claim about who Isaiah was talking about there. He doesn't need to. Now, it is plausible that in some sense, Paul is obliquely referring to this passage. You could say he's echoing the language, or at least it's in the back of his mind. But the problem is that there are many Old Testament texts that were originally about someone else, but then a New Testament author comes along and interprets that text as also being about Jesus. For a really crystal clear example, look at the prophecy about Emmanuel in Isaiah 7. In Matthew 1.23, the author says that this passage is about Jesus, it's fulfilled in Jesus. But if you go back and look at the prophecy in its context, it's clear that it's about some kid, some baby in Isaiah's time. Okay, what's going on here? Well, the author of the Gospel according to Matthew must think that God intended that passage to have two meanings, and so to be fulfilled two times— once by that baby, which some interpreters think is King Hezekiah, but it doesn't really matter who it is. The point is, it's not Jesus, it's somebody else. And yet, it can also have this extra meaning, which presumably wasn't known to Isaiah, but was known to God. So, in saying that Jesus fulfills that prophecy, that is not the gospel author's way of asserting that Jesus is the same person as that baby from the time of Isaiah. Right? That would be crazy. Okay, so when texts were originally about Yahweh and New Testament authors apply them to Jesus, it's not because they're hinting that Jesus is God himself, because we can see all these same authors distinguishing constantly between God and Jesus. So you just can't take them as just sort of slipping in this numerical identity claim. If they thought God and Jesus were one and the same, they would not think that there were any differences between God and Jesus. They, in principle, wouldn't be able to differ. But they do differ, right? God sent his unique son. Jesus did not send his unique son. They all think that. So they either think that there are two meanings and two fulfillments of the text, or maybe in some cases, they think that the text is about God acting through Jesus. And so when Jesus fulfills it, it's really about God acting through him in his life. But then again, it wouldn't be collapsing together God and Jesus it would be talking about something God's going to do through him in these latter days. That's another alternative possibility for some of these passages, where a prophecy that was originally about someone else is said to be fulfilled in or by the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, but let's go back to Dr. Lacona, and now we get to his oddball translation of a certain clause here. And they're going to say that the Lord is Jesus Christ. Now, some English translations say that Jesus Christ is Lord. No, sorry, I have to make a correction here. It's not some English translations, it's all of them, right? NIV, that Jesus Christ is Lord. New Living Translation, that Jesus Christ is Lord. English Standard Version, that Jesus Christ is Lord. King James, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Same with New King James, same with New American Standard. Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible. American Standard, Good News Translation, NET Bible, Young's Literal Translation, etc., etc. No, all the English translations do it that way, and there's a good reason why they don't do it the way that Dr. Lacona does it. But let's hear him out. Now, some English translations say that Jesus Christ is Lord. That makes it just a little bit vague. In the Greek, the word kurios, Lord, appears first in that clause. They're going to profess that the Lord is Jesus Christ. It's there to bring emphasis. That's why they put it first in the clause. They're saying that Jesus is no less than Yahweh. This is amazing. 
He existed in the role of God. He gave that up, took on the role of a servant. He died the humble death on the cross. God exalted him and gave him the title above every other. What's the highest title? Is it president? Is it prime minister? It's Lord God. He's going to give him the title above every other title so that a Jesus title, and then they apply a verse that applies to Yahweh in the Old Testament and attributes it to Jesus, to him. They're going to profess that the Lord, Yahweh, is Jesus Christ. Whoa. The earliest Christians, that is the apostles, this comes from Paul, believed that and was proclaiming that Jesus is no less than Yahweh. Yes, to call Jesus Lord is vague. And that is because there are four New Testament meanings for the Greek word kurios, which we translate as Lord. It can mean sir or master. It can be a term for God, but also it can be a term for Jesus, especially after his exaltation. Just look at what the lexicons say. So yes, to say that Jesus is Lord, just as far as the, the word choice goes, is ambiguous because Lord is used in four different ways. But I must hasten to add that usually the context makes clear which of the four meanings is in play. So this four-way ambiguity of the term kurios is usually not much of a problem. There are a few exceptions, but the rule is the context lets us know if it's being used to mean sir, master, the name of God, or this special in-between Christian meaning for the one Lord who is someone in addition to the one God. This is a title that's much higher than sir, and it's higher than any normal human master, but it's a lower sense than the sense of meaning Yahweh. Now about the Greek, Dr. Lacona is correct, I think, that Kyrios, Lord, is placed first by the author in order to emphasize the claim. Okay, but the way to translate that into contemporary English would be to say that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And put Lord in italics or underline it or something. That's how we emphasize. We don't emphasize by putting it first. And whereas in Greek, it's not wrong to put Lord first here. It is wrong in English. Just generally in Greek, the word order matters less than it does in English. They don't use word order for as many things as we use it for. And in English, we use word order to distinguish the subject, in other words, what the sentence is about, from the predicate, in other words, what is being asserted of that subject. We put the subject first. But when you say that what people are confessing is that the Lord is Jesus, you're making the subject at hand not be Jesus, but rather the Lord. Hey, they're going to confess something about the Lord, and here it is. The Lord is Jesus. No, that's completely backwards. The subject here is Jesus and his status after God has highly exalted him. Verse 9. He's so exalted that everyone will bend the knee to him. And he's so exalted, verse 11, that every tongue will confess that, the subject here is Jesus Christ, they'll confess about Jesus Christ that he is Lord. He's been exalted to that position of Lord, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament. And this is all, of course, to the glory of God, a.k.a. the Father. His English translation is wrong. It's not a permissible translation of the passage. And that's why no translation that I can find does it that way. But I think his translation is being influenced by his overall position about God and Jesus. You see, whenever it's true that A just is B, that A is numerically identical to B, it's also true that B is numerically identical to A. Numerical identity is a symmetrical relation. If the first thing's identical to the second thing, then just as equally the second thing's identical to the first thing, because it's just one thing. Right, so if you're going to identify Jesus with Yahweh, it doesn't matter whether you say Jesus equals Yahweh or whether you say Yahweh equals Jesus. Okay, so because he's misreading Paul here as collapsing together God and the Son of God as one and the same, that's why he sees no problem in turning it around. Because again, A equals B and B equals A, those are equivalent claims when equals expresses the concept of numerical identity. It's so right, it's not a claim about the Lord, the status of the Lord God Almighty. It's a claim about the status of Jesus, and the claim is that he has to be confessed as Lord. 
as God himself? No, of course not. This honoring of Jesus is to God's glory, Paul says in this same verse. This Jesus was in the form of God. He had some kind of similarity to God, but he didn't exploit that. He emptied himself. He obeyed God even to the point of death, and he died. So, no, it's not God. It's just a patent mistake to think that Paul here thinks Jesus and God are the same one. Again, flip back a chapter. Look at Paul's greeting. In Philippians 1-2, he writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends his greetings from two different ones, not one and the same named in two different ways. That's the only way to take that. How do we know that Paul thinks that God, that is to say the Father, is above Christ? Well, he says this clearly in his writings. Now, if you allow the disputed writings in Ephesians 1, he says that the Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you go. Jesus isn't God. Jesus has a God over him, namely the one true God. Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Father in the New Testament. But stick to the undisputed writings. 1 Corinthians 11.3, God is the head of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15 is particularly powerful. All things are to be put in subjection to Christ. Oh, all things, but of course, with God accepted, the one who's putting all the other creatures under Christ. So there's just a really strong and clear differentiation between Jesus and God in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's very clear who's the boss of who there. There's no reason to think, by the way, that it's merely functional. That somehow Jesus could be God and yet be subject to God. God can't be subject to himself, right? Okay, so to say that this passage teaches clearly, or even that it just implies or hints at or assumes that Jesus is God himself, that Jesus and God are one and the same, it's just a mistake, It's a tradition-motivated misreading to think that Paul here collapses Jesus and God into one and the same. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Lacona moves on to Romans 10.9, written close to the same time as Philippians, and Paul says this, if you profess with your mouth, the Lord is Jesus. Uh-oh. Same thing, Lord is first Mm-mm. in that clause. <laughs> and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, that's not a correct translation. You can Google Romans 10.9 Bible Hub, and it will show you a whole bunch of prominent recent English translations and you can just see how many of them there translate that the Lord is Jesus. That's a little disturbing that he's just putting an obvious mistranslation out there, you know, as if this is going to illuminate the text. There isn't a translation that does that. And the reason is it gets the subject of the passage wrong. You're not confessing about the Lord that the Lord is Jesus. So the subject is the Lord and what's being said about him is that he's Jesus. No, you're professing something about Jesus, namely that he has the status of the Lord, right? As Acts says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Again, I suspect that because he just collapses the Lord God Almighty with the Lord Jesus Christ, thinks those are co-referring terms, then it doesn't really matter which one you say first. In this sense, if the Lord is Jesus, then Jesus is Lord. If one's true, the other's going to be true. But come on, is Paul in this passage collapsing together Jesus with the one God? Surely not. And here's why. The rest of the verse, you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's a difference presupposed here between Jesus and God. Jesus died. God being essentially immortal, Paul's assumption is, just in principle can't die. Okay, so Jesus died, God has never died. There's a difference between them. 
right? And then Jesus was raised by God, but God was not raised by God. So, no, this very verse, one single verse, presupposes that they are two, not that they're one and the same. Okay, but let's see how Dr. Lacona thinks that this passage shows that Paul thinks that Jesus and God are one and the same. Well, the question is, what does he mean when he says, if you profess with your mouth, the Lord is Jesus? Four verses later, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you profess with your mouth, the Lord is Jesus, you'll be saved. Well, where does Paul get that from? He gets it from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and it will come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's Joel referring to? Yahweh. And Paul is taking this and he's applying it to Jesus, saying Jesus is Yahweh. Nope, that's just a clear-cut case of the fulfillment fallacy. If this was a good method of reasoning, you could prove that Jesus was a baby in the time of the prophet Isaiah. Because we know that Paul doesn't collapse Jesus and God, either Paul thinks that there are two meanings to this prophetic text, or he thinks that to trust in Jesus is to trust in God, because to trust Jesus is to trust the one who sent him. To call upon the name of Jesus will then be calling through him upon God. So, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think Paul probably understands the Lord there to be Jesus. But if he means it in the original sense, yeah, to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to accept that God has made him Lord, that is to trust in the name of the Lord God Almighty, because it's God who sent and empowered and vindicated the Lord Jesus Christ. You just can't confuse together the two lords. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians is probably the oldest piece of Christian literature in our New Testament, or, or period. It's probably the first to have been written in the late 40s, with less than 20 years after, somewhere between 15 and 18 years after Jesus died. And here Paul writes about the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones. Well, now look at what he's referring to from the Old Testament. The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In Zechariah 14.5. Who do you think Paul's saying Jesus is here? It's not really ambiguous here. He's saying Jesus is God. No, it's not. No, it's not unambiguous at all. First, he doesn't say that this Zechariah prophecy was about Jesus. But even if that's what he's thinking here, again, fulfillment fallacy, he could be thinking that there are two meanings here. But most importantly, if you just look at the wider context, back up a couple verses, you will see that here in 1 Thessalonians 3, no, Paul is not confusing together the Lord God with the Lord Jesus. He writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May both of them direct us. That presupposes that they're numerically distinct. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Right, so may Jesus make you increase and abound in love, etc., so that he may, you know, deliver holy people to someone else, to our God and Father, when Jesus comes back. Is this collapsing Jesus and God? Absolutely not. Does it even presuppose that Jesus has a divine nature? There's no reason to think that. Again, prefer relevant context to dodgy inferences and over-readings based on making too much of an Old Testament reference. Go back to chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians where Paul mentions that the people he's writing to have, he says, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, so they used to be idolaters, but now they serve the one true God. Fantastic. Who is that God? Well, we know from everything else Paul has written, but also it's in the next verse. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So who is the living and true God, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1? It's the one who has a son. It's the Father. But that's what he says everywhere. That's his normal teaching. 
Another place you can look just to see what Paul thinks about Jesus and God is the first seven verses of Romans 1, you know, basically Paul's intro to Romans. Look at that. Is he collapsing together God and Jesus, or is he constantly distinguishing between God and Jesus? You tell me. That's a clear passage. So, unlike Dr. Lacona, Paul does not confuse together the one Lord and the one God. He doesn't think that Jesus is God and that God is Jesus. And of course, this confusion is not anything that's unique to Dr. Lacona. This is a widespread confusion within the Trinitarian mainstream, as is clear from certain Jesus is God apologists who relentlessly hammer this claim of numerical identity. They'll make arguments of this form, only God can do this and that. Oh, and Jesus can do this and that. And so it follows from that that Jesus just is God, that he and God are one and the same because only God can do that thing. In other words, anyone who can do that is numerically identical to the one God. And when they make arguments like that, you realize that whatever they think about the Trinity, they are running together Jesus and God, that is to say, the Son and the Father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, if the apostles thought Jesus was God, what could explain their thinking that? So the earliest Christians, Jesus' apostles, were saying Jesus is God. So now how do we know that this wasn't just Paul the apostle saying, how do we know the other apostles were saying it as well? Well, we know from Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2 that Paul knew the other apostles. He met with Peter, Galatians 1, he went up to Jerusalem Indeed. three years after his conversion. He met with Peter for 15 days. Excellent He points. saw James, the brother of Jesus as well. 14 years later, he goes back up, he runs the gospel message past them that he had been preaching. This is Galatians 2 now, mm -hmm. to make sure he's preaching the same thing they're preaching. And they said, yep, Paul, fist bump, good job, keep up the good work, brother. So they're saying he's preaching the same thing they're preaching. Peter had a, a disciple of his own later on named Clement of Rome, and Clement put Paul and Peter on the same level and called him the Blessed Paul. The Apostle John had a disciple called Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, and Polycarp said that Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. And Polycarp ends up quoting from Paul's letters a couple of times and referring to them as part of the sacred scriptures. This is amazing. It's unthinkable that if Paul's preaching this gospel message, the message of truth, that something as basic as Jesus' identity wasn't included in that. Of course it would have been. Mm -hmm. And so you have True. Paul saying the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and John, certified that he's preaching the same thing they're preaching. And you've got the disciples of two of those guys, Peter and John, pretty much saying Paul's teaching what they were teaching. I could give you more evidence as well, but that should suffice to show that when we're hearing Paul on the gospel message, the basics of the Christian faith, we are likewise hearing what the Jerusalem apostles were reporting. If Paul's teaching that Jesus was God, we can be certain, historically speaking, that is, that so were Jesus' apostles. Or the if other he isn't, who had same point. Him. Okay, so key truth number one, the earliest Christians, Jesus' apostles, regarded him as divine. And notice, this is not at all to assume that the Bible is reliable, is it? It's just to take it and say, what can we get out of it, looking at it as historians? What is it that we can know with certainty without saying that this is divinely inspired? Just looking at it as a historian, what can we conclude? And we can certainly conclude that the earliest Christians regarded Jesus as God. That's key truth number one. Mm. I'm sorry, but... As best I can tell, Dr. Lacona has utterly failed to establish what he calls key truth number one, which is that the earliest Christians thought that Jesus was just God himself. No, we haven't found any good evidence of that at all. 
when you see Paul clearly and regularly distinguishing between Jesus and God, you can't also think that Paul stupidly is collapsing them together. It's uncharitable to think that Paul both numerically distinguishes and numerically identifies Jesus with God. And it's uncharitable to think that Paul thinks that Jesus just is God, and yet there are differences between Jesus and God. Right? That would just take him to be utterly confused. There is somebody who's confused here, but it's not the Apostle Paul. He teaches that there's one God, but that's not Jesus, that's the Father. And then, as we've heard, in addition to the one God, he teaches that there's one Lord. And that is the man Jesus, the one who died and who then, thank God, was raised and exalted to God's right hand by God. Before I go, I suspect that there might be a few listeners who have listened to my arguments this far and who are irritated, annoyed, and a bit confused about what is this numerical identity I'm talking about? What is this equal sign business? Okay, well, the equal sign, it doesn't have to do with mathematics or the numerical value of a variable in algebra. Get that out of your head. This business about numerical identity claims is something that everybody learns when they take their first class in deductive logic at the university level. This concept isn't something unique to me. My ideas about this are pretty straightforward and pretty widely accepted. Some people find it hard to distinguish numerical identity from qualitative identity. Right? Qualitative identity is just similarity. It comes in degrees, it comes in aspects. Things can be similar in one respect, but not in another respect. In contrast, numerical identity is all or nothing. There aren't varieties of it. It doesn't come in degrees. Either Samuel Clemens and Mark Twain are the same guy, or they're not. There's no kind of in-between. There's no being sort of identical. The other principle that I'm presupposing in this reasoning is that one and the same thing can't be and not be the same way at the same time. If that's true, then when you find a simultaneous difference between this thing and that thing, then you know you really are dealing with two things. So for instance, if you're wondering whether or not the Boston Strangler is Joe Schmo, well, you can rule out that Joe Schmo is the Boston Strangler if you can just find one difference between the Strangler and Mr. Schmo. Just one difference. Even if you don't know who the actual Strangler is, maybe you know that the Strangler was in Boston, Massachusetts on September 1st, 2020. But you also know that Joe Schmo was in California for that entire day. Okay, well, that exonerates him, right? You're reasoning that, hey, I know there has been a simultaneous difference between this and that. Okay, so those really are two things. I'm not just perceiving one thing in two different ways. Now, when people study apologetics, frequently they will study some materials on critical thinking, and they will study some older medieval-style logic but they oftentimes do not study this sort of modern logic. So if you want to kind of brush up on what this concept is, how identity statements work, I've got some links to past posts on the Trinity's blog at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So just look for links that have the word identity in them. And those, in conjunction with Podcast 124, will help you start to get your head around this sort of reasoning and arguments which employ statements of numerical identity. Again, you can pick up any standard Introduction to Deductive Logic textbook, but the way I'm suggesting is maybe a little bit easier than that. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, Dr. Lacona argues that the best explanation for the earliest Christians thinking that Jesus is God is that Jesus actually claimed to be God, which is what some of the New Testament evidence, he says, suggests. This week's thinking music has been the track Moon Shadow by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track.
If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.